Welcome to Applied Faith with Pastor Russ Falachi, Senior Pastor of Christian Church of Broomfield, located in Broomfield, Colorado. Our mission is to provide practical application of biblical truth to help you experience true purpose and lasting change that can begin now. Here's Pastor Russ. We are uh, beginning uh, a new series leading us up to Easter called The Ultimate Game Changer referring to the resurrection of Jesus. As far as the phrase game changer, I I think you've all heard that phrase before. If not, um, well, here's here's a definition. An event, idea, procedure, company, or an individual that significantly alters the way things are done as a whole. Um, And we're going to be looking at the recognized impact of Jesus' resurrection and how that did change everything forever. There's no greater event in history. Well, other than Adam and Eve (laughs) eating the apple, Jesus reversed all that through his death and resurrection. But game changers are important. Game changers change the game. They bring new hope and new life and new understanding, a new way to approach life. I mean, uh, to make it practical, um, some of you may believe that Russell Wilson is a game changer for the Broncos. Some of you may not. But a lot of people are like, all right, Broncos are now a contender. He's going to change the way the Broncos play and approach the game. I'm excited about it because we've stunk. (laughs) I think we've been through like 68 quarterbacks since Peyton Manning. So now we've got ourselves a superstar. But Jesus brought... Such an impact, which, and I think uh, looking out, I, I know that we all agree with that, but I'm telling you, sometimes we can kind of lose the, the impact of what it is that Jesus accomplished and why he had to die. Because we say, oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins, but why did he have to die? Like, why did he have to go through that so that we could have hope? And if he didn't die and rise again, I mean, what it, would, is that a big deal? I mean, yes, we're going to say yes, it is. But we got to dig deep again to understand why this is such an incredible act of love, such an incredible act of grace and mercy, when we realize that the only person, the only being that could accomplish this was God himself, and that he willingly did it so that we could be here today and, and have a new look and understanding of our lives, this world, and what it means to be alive. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. Paul says this, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the, from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom uh, he did not raise up, and if, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. He's saying the same thing over and over again. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, exclamation point. I didn't put that there. Paul did. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have hope of Christ, we are all of men the most pitiable. So any question about how Paul felt about the knowledge of the resurrection, of where our hope hinged on? And so here, the Corinthians, see, they weren't necessarily saying Jesus didn't rise, but they were denying the principle of resurrection, saying that us as believers don't have a physical body that physically resurrects, but that we just become spirit beings. But he was like, if you go there, you actually have to understand the impact that that belief is or promotes because Jesus himself was the first fruits of the principle of resurrection. And resurrection is our greatest hope, right? Eternal life is our greatest hope. But he's saying he really logically breaks it down. If you believe this and this is not true, and if this is not true, then that's not true. And he's like, and then if there is no resurrection, our faith is useless. It's pointless. If there is no resurrection, what we are doing right now is absolutely pointless. He goes, if there is no principle of resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. He was just like, if you believe that about us and resurrection, then this is what it really means. Then he goes, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him and defeated him. If death has power over Jesus, he is not God. If Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a a complete sacrifice for sin. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. So Paul took this very seriously. He took this idea that they were promoting very seriously because anything that eats at the reality and truth of the resurrection of Jesus is detrimental because the greatest gift ever given was the resurrection of Jesus that proved that he was God and demonstrates and proves that we are forgiven of our sin. And if we're still in our sin, we're hopeless, right? So why am I saying this? Because a lot of us believe it. Because sin's a big deal, right? Sin's a big deal. It's such a big deal that Jesus actually had to come down as God to earth, walk amongst sinners, but walk perfectly in order to be sacrificed and rise again so that sin could be dealt with. We are living in a time where sin now is foo-fooed, right? So if there really is no sin, if sin is not a big deal... If now it's about everyone living according to their truth, if right and wrong is really up to the individual, right, then who cares about the resurrection? Right? Who cares? And it's not just a cultural issue. I was looking up some surveys, but within the church now, there's some really dangerous stuff that's happening, more dangerous than what was happening in the church of Corinth. Survey, the survey I was reading about, the survey revealed Six in ten Americans agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not about objective truth. And one in three evangelicals say the same. What? When it comes to Americans with evangelical beliefs, this survey found that a majority say most people are basically good, 52%. God accepts the worship of all religions, 51%. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father, 78%. This is evangelical beliefs. So yes, I'm preaching to the choir, but man, 
There's other choirs out there that are singing a whole different tune. Do you see? Most people are basically good. What is that saying? It's saying they are not realizing the impact of one sin on your eternal destination. They do not understand the consequence of sin in the face and in the presence of a holy and perfect God. People are basically good. If they were, Jesus would not have sent his son. God accepts the worship of all religions. That can't be. If you accept that, then what you're saying is what Jesus did doesn't really matter because he's the only one that died for the sin issue. He's the only one. But if you said, well, all of them get yourself to God. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father or comes to the Father except through me. That's, that totally stands opposite, opposite of what is preached and what is spoken in our word. Again, it comes down to the sin issue. The way Jesus, the reason Jesus is the only way is because he's the only one that paid the price for sin that had to be paid so that we could actually come to the Father because the sin issue is dealt with. And he did it willingly. But we're in a time now of relativism where to accept the implications of, of sin means that you have to accept accountability and responsibility. But if you don't want that, then you, ha- then you have the ability to say, well, my truth is my truth, and what I really believe about my wrongdoing is my belief about my wrongdoing. I'm a basically good person, this and that. It goes on and on and on. And here we have Easter coming up, and you're going to see how much of the world and culture views that. It was just, it was an event that doesn't really have that much implication or really shouldn't be believed at face value. Where, where's this other one? This is, in, this is in England. A quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What? I had to read that over and over. These were legit surveys done recently, within the last decade. Right, a lot of you are going, how is that possible? I know. <laughs> but that's what's happening out there. Because to accept the resurrection at face value is to accept that sin has consequences and that we need forgiveness and that there is a moral standard that applies to all. And people don't like that. That's judgmental. But the resurrection was the biggest game changer of all time if you truly understand the consequence of sin. And we're living in the world that desperately needs to know that there is a Savior that loves them, a God that loves them, that paid the price so that they could enter eternity with the Father for all eternity because he loves them and created them. But yet it's denied. Watch this. Because sin matters. Who would say, all right, sin matters, it's a huge deal. Sin matters, it's a huge deal. Okay, so we accept the word of God, do we not? As truth. So I'm going to read to you what truth says. Romans 2, 5. 
But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves, what? Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one, each one according to his deeds. And none of our deeds are good. That's why we need Jesus. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory for glory, honor, and immortality. Those that are saved and live for Jesus and pursue him and pursue applying the word to their lives, knowing that they desperately need grace every day. But yet they are wanting to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus through righteous living and overcoming sin in their lives. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey what? Unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Any question how God views sin and what happens with undealt sin? Like the wrath of God is a real thing. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's really the eternal reality. It's the spiritual reality that is over all of mankind. Like when it comes down to it, Jesus died so people could avoid and be safe from the wrath of God. Because that's what sin incurs. Yes, the message of Jesus should be loving and it should be filled with grace. But see, you don't understand the full implication of his love and mercy if you do not understand the implications of sin and the wrath of God, right? Oh, great, he died and rose again for my sins, but sin's not that big a deal. Ephesians 5.3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints, neither filthiness or foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who have rejected Jesus and live according to their own instincts and desires, let no one deceive you with empty words. Did you catch that? Let no one deceive you with empty words, empty preaching, feel-good preaching, tingly preaching. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons and daughters of disobedience. All right, Paul, slow down, buddy. Tone it down. But he knows human nature naturally wants to foo-foo sin at any level. It wants to kind of diminish the implications of it. But Paul over and over again reminds them, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the grace that is found in that covers us and keeps us from the wrath of God. That when it comes time to answer, we are seen as the righteousness of God in Christ because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. But yet those who have rejected it have no covering and they are seen by God for their deeds. And if you're guilty in sinning in one of the law, you're guilty in, bre- you're guilty in breaking all of the law. Hard stuff. Do you see why the resurrection was necessary? Well, we're going to see more. Because 
What's the only way to appease God's wrath? This, what? What? Right. And before Christ, what was the only way? Sacrifice. We're going to look at that. I mean, this is so severe that the only way to even appease the wrath of God before Jesus was to murder animals. It was the only way. This is how serious it's been from the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do first? He killed an animal. They heat, that animal didn't do anything. Killed the animal and then put the skin of the animal and fur of the animal on Adam and Eve to cover up their idiocy, their foolishness. You see, the old covenant included the law, right? Which made Israel, people of Israel, aware of God's standard, aware of sin. They had to obey it. But God also offered a sacrificial system because no one could obey it perfectly. God never expected them to. He was like, this is the standard. This is my standard. But because I know you can't do it perfectly, here's the whole sacrificial system that you must abide by in order to appease my wrath. Hebrews 9.27 says this, 9.22, and according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no removal. So right there, if we see culture right now, they may acknowledge that they don't live up fully to their own standards. My question would be, well, what do you do? What happens when you don't live up to your standard and you will sin or whatever you call it? Well, I just make up for it. You know, or I do this, or I do this, and I try to be a better person. I try to see, but under God's law, that doesn't do it. You're stained by that sin forever, unless there is sacrifice, unless there is blood shed. There is no removal, and forgiveness of sin. Let's look at Leviticus. Yay! Verse one, chapter one. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of your livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without what? He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And we're not gonna, I mean, we can't break all of this down, but right away you're seeing the sacrifice, first of all, had to cost something to the person offering it. That's why they couldn't go like, catch some wild animal. They couldn't just go find some rat in the hole and bring that. It had to be something of value their own livestock, and it had to be the best, spotless, perfect. One they would want to keep for themselves, right? It's like, no, that's the one. And then God would not accept it if it was with defect. So God wasn't happy. It had to be perfect. If it had a defect, no, God's not accepting that. 
This is what they had to go through. This was the understanding as a culture, as, as the people of God, of God's chosen people, as a nation of Israel. This is what they understood. When I sin, this is what I have to go through to get right with God. And they performed the murder, the sacrifice. They had to take their own, their own animal, spotless, and then cut that thing's throat, knowing that poor little animal didn't do anything. They did it. Do you see how everything points to Jesus? Do you see why he had to be spotless and perfect as he walked? Only God can be that. A human being cannot be that. 1 Peter 1.17 and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a what? Without what? Blemish and without spot. Do you see why Peter is referencing it like this? As he is equating Jesus and his sacrifice with being a spotless lamb of God, because that's God's law. God fulfills his own law. He doesn't make exception. It's the process that he put in place to deal with sin. And so he goes... He indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world, meaning God knew what mankind would choose and he already had the plan in place. And he delivered the first part of that plan to the Israelites that would eventually become fulfilled in Jesus. And he goes, but was made, was manifest in the last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Is Jesus' resurrection a big deal? It's not, a, it's not just a, li, a little story, you know? It's not just something that, you know, it, not that it's, well, yeah, it's downplayed. It's become to be downplayed, not believed, foo-fooed. But do you see, Jesus represents God taking care of the sin issue within the process he created for forgiveness, it couldn't be any, just anybody. It had to be God himself. And Jesus was that. And there's another thing about God's plan that we need to understand. Some of this may be new to you, some not. But sin, ultimately, what God, the, the plan that he established, the truth that he established for sin, is that it has to be both propitiated and expiated. What? Propitiation is the act of appeasing the wrath of God first. God's mad. Justice needs to be done. So sacrifice, first of all, appeased the wrath of God. Okay, something, something died. Because that's what sin demands. And then expiation is the act of atoning for the sin and then removing the sin from the individual. So two things happen within this sacrifice. And the biggest day of sacrifice, who's ever heard of the Day of Atonement? Let's read about the Day of Atonement, because this is really interesting, especially when you begin to see what Jesus represents. It says, Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering. 
which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take how many goats? Two goats, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, and one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. What kind of witchcraft is this? Well, the blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the ark, ritually appeasing the wrath of God for another year. Okay? So just have, get that picture. The, the goat that had to die, the blood was sprinkled on the ark, and it appeased the wrath of God for the whole nation for another year. Because remember, the wrath of God has to be appeased. And so that got... That goat got the full wrath of God and appeased God's wrath for a year. But the second goat removed the sins of the people as it was sent into the wilderness. And it was forgotten and no longer clung to the people. So ritualistically, what that was saying is like God's wrath has been appeased and now your sin has been removed and forgotten. Because remember, Jesus, like, as far as the east is from the west, I have, you know, removed your sins, right? This is part of God's plan, that it's not just forgiven, but it's removed. And this is symbolic for the people of Israel. But see, what Jesus represents is all of that in one. He appeased God's wrath, and he removes our sin. Those are the two things that have to happen. And it really happens with Jesus, it's not like the symbolic thing that begins to, that, you know, that you have to, the next year you got to redo the whole deal. It's a once and for all that we can know that as we accept the sacrifice of Jesus, God's wrath towards me has been appeased and my sin has been removed. And it's a once and for all sacrifice. And I could have the confidence of the righteousness of God in Christ because of the once and only and final sacrifice of Jesus. Did Jesus need to die? Yes. Did Jesus need to die? Yes. Is sin a big deal? Yes. Does God get angry at sin? (laughs) Yes. And those animals that did no wrong died in the place of all the Israelites. Just like Jesus died for all of mankind who did no wrong. But it was necessary. Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own what? Toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And appeased the wrath of God. And gave us the promise of removal of sin. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Wow. Do you see? There's no way to take credit. There's no way for us to take credit in appeasing God's wrath. It had to be a sacrifice of blood from a spotless lamb, which was Jesus. It was the only way. There's nothing man can do 
And God prepared and performed his own sacrifice on himself. Do you see how it can humble you? Do you see that if you add anything to the sacrifice of Jesus, it diminishes what Jesus did? Because the two goats was enough for a year. Jesus was good for all eternity. He completed it. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never really take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, what? Forever sat down at the right hand of God. Because the priests are standing doing their work. Jesus sat down saying, it's done. There's no work left. Sacrifice is done and finished. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified and set apart. Any question about that? But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And how will he do that? Holy Spirit. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember what? What did that second goat mean symbolically? That he would not remember their sins for a year. It took care of it. They were, the sins were removed. Jesus removes our sins permanently. God forgets them. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why? Because there's no sin. Jesus accomplished what no person can do. He fulfilled God's order, God's plan. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, God himself... Forgiveness now is made because of that one sacrifice. Therefore, we can have confidence as we are on this journey that when we do struggle, God is with us through his spirit. There is forgiveness and grace and mercy because that was the once and for all sacrifice. God's wrath has been appeased. And that knowledge humbles us, right? It humbles us. And it doesn't make you want to sin more? No. It just makes us very aware how unworthy we are, but yet it is finished. And then Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, Meaning, if we sin and reject the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Those that wanted to stay in the sacrificial system and deny that Jesus was God and Jesus was Lord and continue to do what they were used to, he's like, there's no sacrifice. You guys, you're doing an old system. The sacrifice has already been made. He goes, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour its adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God and what he represents underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? 
just a common thing. Something not to be really taken, to be taken lightly. No, he says, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Yay! But you all, why is it important that we read that and hear that? Because we're saved. Do you see what the word saved means? You have to be saved from something. You're saved from the wrath of God. That's, that, that's what you're saved from. Yes, you're saved from yourself and you're saved from living a life of just only having hope in yourself. You're saved from a lot of things, but that's not what, you are saved. Salvation is about being saved from the wrath of God because of sin. Do you see why it's the biggest game changer ever? You see why people need to hear the truth and pray that the word stirs them to make them aware that sin really is a real deal? That just because you believe one thing doesn't mean it's not true. But the enemy would love to diminish the impact of sin or even the reality of sin and promote self and say whatever you feel and whatever you think is really what you need to follow. The resurrection points to all of that. You accept the resurrection, you accept the consequence of sin that we cannot do anything in and of ourselves to free ourselves or to save ourselves, right? How do you sense grace in a message like this? I would hope so. It's not to feel heavy, it's to feel gratitude. Because the cross, the grace of God, is the greatest gift ever. And when you know you can't earn it, And when you know that you're still flawed, but yet God still loves you and is with you, and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, it makes you want to keep going, right? It makes you, it's like you appreciate, it sounds, you appreciate God more. (laughs) You love God more. Not that we love God, but he loved us first, therefore we love him, right? Right? So it's important that we understand again and remind ourselves why Jesus had to die. Because there would be nothing left except anticipation of wrath and anguish. But it's reality. But God's good, right? Is God good? You love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Is he worthy of all of your life? He gave his whole life for you. Do you see? He is worthy of everything that we have to give. It's huge. Because every day we're saved by the once and for all sacrifice. So Jesus, thank you. Father, this is hard stuff, but Lord, yeah, it, man, it points to your goodness. Grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus for the permanency of your sacrifice and its effects, that those who receive it, Lord, are forgiven, that they stand now in a place of righteousness because of your righteousness, that our sins are forgotten and removed, Lord, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace in times where we desperately need it, 
feel ashamed or being tempted. Lord, you are there. God, you are there to hear us because we are entering through the narrow door, which is Jesus Christ. Lord, Jesus, accept our gratitude. Lord, our love, our praise. Lord, you are worthy of all for fulfilling what needed to be fulfilled in order for us to stand in a place of mercy and grace, Lord. Lord, I pray that this word comes comes alive in each and every one of us, changes the way we see ourselves, changes the way we see our neighbors and those that do not have this truth and hope. But Lord God, we give you all the glory and praise. All the glory and praise. Amen. You've been listening to Applied Faith with Pastor Russ Falachi, an outreach of Christian Church of Broomfield, located in Broomfield, Colorado. To contact Pastor Russ, visit his website at russfalachi.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, an alive faith is an applied faith.